So here we are. Good evening and welcome, folks, one and all, to Content Content Late Night. It's not Sunday at 8 a.m. It's Wednesday at 7 p.m., way past my bedtime, of course. Joining me tonight is a person who I'm very excited to talk to, Barrett Smith. Barrett, thanks Hello. for coming on the show, good sir. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I got to say, live from Arkansas, it looks beautiful there. It's a nice day today. Yeah, we get about <laughs> two weeks of spring, and then it's going to be 100 degrees for the next six months. So Man, we're trying that's... to enjoy it while we have it. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Barrett. Uh, I guess I met you what would now be like years ago. I would um, guess probably five years ago. I yeah. moved to New York in 2015. And I was there for a year before I left for Virginia. Right. And so we must have met in that year because I knew you before that. That's and right. I was trying to figure out today where, and I think maybe it was at the Beast, Mike. It was. I happen okay. to remember this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I remember being very intimidated by you because I thought you were so handsome and so funny. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. I remember, uh, I think that you, and I don't know if you ever met Kip Geddes. Um, Geddes are the only, he's he's now fixing up a Miata on Instagram, so it's been kind of cool to watch. Um, nice. I don't know if he's still performing. But <laughs> I met him at a mic, I met you at a mic, and I can't really remember um, any other people that I became friends with, aside from BYOT, at a mic. Um, my comedy partner, Jared, who you may or may not have met, I All did, the time. I met him once. Yeah. Yeah. He would know everybody. And I would say, where did you meet this comedian? He said, well, at a mic, we were there together. And I'm sure I was outside smoking or doing something. But somehow I managed to to retain you and Kip Geddes <laughs> as acquaintances from open mics. Well, I am in uh, I'm in rarefied air there and, right. and I'm honored. <laughs> Are you still performing? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so that was another thing is you were in a duo and eventually I was in a duo. Yep. Um, and now, now I'm uh, by my lonesome here. And of course, the past year has been uh, uh, just a bit of a throwaway. But, uh, but also, I've been learning and working on new things and stuff like that. But uh, the first thing I want to bring up, uh, first off, like I said, thank you so much for doing the show. And I, I have a bunch of questions I want to ask you. Uh, actually, you know what? I'll, I'll come back to this later. Let me start with the first question that I like to ask okay. with is, um, what is your uh, religious or spiritual background? And then, like, where are you at with things now? Sure. Um, so I grew up in the Church of Christ, which is not the same thing as the Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, if, where are you from, Derek? Uh, I'm from Albany, New York. Okay. So yeah. I don't know um, what this will mean to you. I thought earlier about looking at the origin of this denomination. And I think it will be more instructive just to tell you kind of how it was distinguished to me growing up in it. Yeah. Um, in Jonesboro, Arkansas, which is where I grew up, if you have any concept of Baptists, um, Southern Baptists, the Church of Christ really distinguished ourselves as being to the right of that. Um, so most of the people that I knew in school either went to a Baptist church or a Church of Christ. And th the big difference, as we were told it, is that uh, you could probably say it's baptismal exclusivity. Like we were told that the way you get to heaven, we always were quoted Mark 16, 16, which is he whoever believes and is baptized will be saved and he who does not believe will be condemned. And we were told, and maybe a Baptist listening to this would say this isn't quite accurate. We were told that um, the Baptist church, their uh, formula for 
salvation was, they would quote Romans 10, 13, who whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so there's this big difference between you have to be immersed. And like, if your knee pops up out of the water, you've got to do it again. Um, okay. And that was a big difference. The big difference was instruments as well. Um, the most liberal churches I went to growing up would clap during songs, but did not use instruments. And the most conservative churches I, I went to growing up would not clap ever. And if there was like a baptism, the whole congregation would just like in unison uh, say amen. And that's how, you know, you celebrated. Um, and that's the church that we went to my entire life, uh, different churches within that denomination. Um, but we went twice on Sunday and once on Wednesday night every week. We did church camps, all of that. I was in public school K through 10. And I went my last two years to um, a Church of Christ private school, a town over. And then I went to a Church of Christ university for four years. Um, and I mean, on every cultural issue, this is as far right as you're going to get. Um, so for me, working my way out of that was uh, about confronting a lot of cultural points of view that I had really been conditioned to argue against, um, I mean, gay marriage, even stuff that like seems very trivial to me now, like women leading services or even prayers in the church. That was not allowed at my church. Women could teach children's classes, but once you had been baptized, you could not be taught by a woman. Really? So it wasn't really, I mean, a religion. We, we spent all of our time going over the same verses maybe over and over. And I don't, think of it as a really religious experience it was like a doctrinal i mean i guess indoctrination right like that that's what it was it was cultural indoctrination um and i think that i spent college not really even getting into political uh ideology at all because i was spending you know any of my intellectual pursuits were kind of breaking down these sorts of barriers that I had been taught to defend really well. Hmm. Um, and I think that after college, I kind of was at a point where I, I felt like I had exhausted. Um, I felt like there really was not anything left for me to grapple with in the church of Christ. I felt really fully past it. Like these big questions that I had to answer to get out of it were answered. And um, you asked me also, sorry to, preempt this, but about spiritual or religious moments. Yes. And there was a moment where I, I found myself going, well, I, I guess if you were to classify what I believe now, it would, it would be atheism. Um, and I think that, that lasted for about five seconds. And there was this sort of finality of like laying down the doctrine that I had been raised with. And all of a sudden I felt like a whole world of uh, religious study opened up to me. Um, and so that's kind of where I am now and where I've been for five or six or seven years. Um, just my ideas are changing constantly, but I'm really interested in absorbing scriptures, writings about this kind of stuff. Um, and it is a sort of convert's zeal that I think I'm way more interested in, um, even the Bible than I was, you know, the stuff I was raised on, I'm, it, it reads completely differently to me now. Um, so that's where I am. It's just, I think that I'm still very, very religious, 
but it manifests in a different way and I hope a healthier way. And it's probably worth mentioning that church is not really a part of that. Um, and that that fell away in college as well. Yeah. Now, so, um, first of all, that we've had a couple of guests who, and even my co-host Mike is like this. I am fascinated by people who, um, come up with, uh, or get involved with a religion that's very strict that they ultimately move away from. And I feel like intuitively you would almost want to be like, well, all that stuff is bad. And so you want to like put it all down. And yet there was David DeAndre we, uh, we had on the show and he was uh, like a Baptist missionary. Um, mm-hmm. And now he has a more kind of universalist approach and left some of that kind of things behind. We have a couple guests that are like that. Um, and even my co-host Mike was in like a, a Christian cult basically, but he got out of it through reading more Jesus things. Um, so like what, what was the process or were there some like kind of key moments where you did start to question, because I, I would assume, like you said, it is a sort of indoctrinating experience to be brought up in that kind of thing. And if your parents are in it, your family is in it, your community's in it, you have no particular reason to question it, at least for a while. And then what was that, pro- if you don't mind my asking, what was that process like of starting to tear away those layers or have those doubts and then and then sit, not say, oh, that's wrong, to say, oh, let me look into this. Yeah, I think that, um, and let me know if I should be muting when I'm not talking. Oh, no, you're fine. Um, okay. I, I think that the problem was never Jesus for me. Like, I didn't have that experience where um, I have a friend who grew up in the same environment that I grew up in, and they had a close friend who was young struck by lightning when they were out running just a total freak accident and it i think really shattered their conception of god in a different way than i had my conception of god shattered like maybe i was kind of i had the time and the freedom to maybe take like a chisel to it and I don't know. I I never felt like I was robbed of religion or like I was cheated or scammed and like the church was to blame. I just felt that what I was hearing, well, I knew that what I was hearing was not really um, a reasonable interpretation of scripture as I was seeing it. And it certainly wasn't a really healthy extrapolation of it into the way that we were structuring our communities and living our lives. Um, it never felt to me that that religion was to blame because I, I felt like my problems were always, um, as a lot of people's are hypocrisy in the church. Um, you know, I, I don't think that like hypocrisy is a, a mortal sin, but it's what chases a lot of people out of the church is this really obvious dissonance between what's right here in front of me in scripture and the way that I'm seeing it, um, not just practiced, but preached. Um, I can't tell you how many times on offering Sunday, you know, when they're trying to get a really, really big contribution at the church that Sunday, the sermon would always be about, oh, well, you know, Jesus says it's going to be harder for, um, it'll be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And there was always this sort of caveat that was like, and this is not Jesus saying that it's, 
bad to be rich. It's like, it certainly seems like it. Like it really seems pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah. But when you really want the doctors in your congregation to write an extra big check this Sunday, the path is probably not telling them that uh, they're sinning. And people are really, really deeply uncomfortable with the idea that um, religion has to have any sort of component of renunciation. And I think the fear of that is a big part of what distorts um, our churches in, into these sorts of uh, institutions that are focused on um, not doing certain things rather than um, living in a particularly righteous, righteous way. You know, it, it becomes a doctrinal checklist because a real evaluation of with the scripture, almost any scripture that I've read across religions is calling you to, it has a degree of renunciation of at least your comfort um, or your ability to move through society as, as everybody else does. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's something Mike and I have talked about too, is all throughout human history, there have been power structures and hierarchical kind of things where um, whether it's uh, a government or a, a, a monarch or uh, a religion, there are similar tactics of control or what have you um, that lead to this hypocrisy and stuff like that. And that, yeah, turns a lot of people off. So like what, what, what we're trying to do with this show basically is, as you know, uh, as well as I like, uh, in America now we have gotten rid of religion in, in many cases um, and it's kind of been replaced by this like worship of material things I'm painting with a broad brush here but um, and that is also I would like to believe that we have reached uh, a certain apex with this material obsession and that we realize hopefully that that is hollow as well that you know having a nice car and having a nice house isn't a guarantee for salvation <laughs> to a guarantee to be a great person and what mike and i are trying to do is kind of sift through these ancient religions and pick out the things that actually are worth keeping because what a shame it is to throw away all of this wisdom from thousands of years and just say, no, all of it is bullshit. I don't care about any of it. Okay, well, there are certainly things that need to be uh, removed, but we can't get rid of all that stuff because to start from ground, to start from absolutely nothing uh, is just uh, a titan of a task. So do you think that we will have a sort of, I, I, I'm, I'm very reticent to use the term like a spiritual awakening because I don't think it's, revival. <laughs> think that's, yeah, revival is a little better. But like, do you think that at some, at some point in our lives, there will be a sort of bounce back where people maybe turn away from the computer, turn away from the television and start realizing that uh, a community-oriented aspect, a spiritual pursuit is worth, is kind of the ultimate thing worth doing? Uh, no, I don't. I yeah. don't think so. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't, and I, and I think that that's okay. And what I mean by that is that you ask if I think 
our society, American or global society, has lost a component of spirituality or religion. And I would say, no, I don't. And I don't think it could. Um, I don't. It's really important, I think, not to conflate religion and churches as institutions. Um, because when we talk about, you know, religion has been uh, a powerful governmental force i don't know about that like if you told me do you think if you tell me that 100 years from now yeah america is is run by a large church sure okay you know i i don't think that that says anything about how religion is doing in american society or in the world um it definitely seems absent from our society because of materialism largely i think you're right cultural forces that are influencing our politics in ways that we can't subvert through policy you can't make people not greedy you know you can't make people not racist we're running up against cultural forces that that we really can't solve at all i mean we can't solve them we can hope that people change but i think um there are always going to be people in our societies who are carrying this torch um, of scripture forward. Like you said, you know, we don't want to lose this wisdom. That's what we're missing. If anything, it's not religion can't go anywhere. You know, it's not a thing to be had or lost. It's, all the books could be burned and the big question would still be there of um, what's the nature of, of our lives? What does it mean to be alive? Does it mean anything? If it doesn't mean anything, what does that mean? What, you know, after we've discovered everything, what is there still left to discover? That stuff can't go away. And people, as long as we're conscious, are going to keep asking it. Um, and the rest of the universe that, you know, is not conscious in that regard is totally already at peace with it. Um, so I'm not worried about it. And I don't think that, I think that religion is pretty indifferent to how well America is doing. Um, could our society use it? I guess, I mean, like if people like, I'll take a flawed example, Bobby Kennedy or Dr. King, or any of the figures that are seen as figures of righteousness, if their study of religion pushed them to take up um, that, that task, for people, then sure, you know, that's beneficial. But I think we really do need to separate it from this sort of like, what can we get from it? You can't get anything from it. Like, that's not what it's for. If anything, it, it, it's for coming to peace with that. Like, you're not going to get an answer and things aren't going to change. Um, there's a, a verse from the Tao Te Ching that when, when I say this is what I've been doing for the last five or six years, I mean, I feel like I will read one thing that is really um, different from what I'm seeing from the rest of my peers or from society or whatever, and it sticks in my brain and I have to really, really focus on it and think about it to reconcile it or, or to rearrange my life because I can't reconcile it. Religion has become sort of an analysis of these ideas that I'm having trouble with. And one of those that I, I feel like I spent two or three years on is is the 29th uh, chapter of the Tao Te Ching, uh, Tao Te Ching. And it says, do you believe you can take over the universe and improve it? I don't think it can be done. And for someone who is like politically geared, I spent a lot of time struggling with that. Um, 
I mean, what, what does it mean to, to care about things and also accept that you can't change them at all? But it's something we're thinking about. And I think maybe that's the value of religion. Um, yeah, we would produce better citizens if, if everybody was studying religion. The way to foster that is to continue trying to, I think, foster multiculturalism. Um, but whether or not we do it or we don't, you know, if one person is studying it, it's the same. Those questions are just sitting there waiting, you know. Uh, well said, man. And yeah, I mean, I think that's at the at the heart of uh, like Buddhist teachings too. That you know, all life involves suffering. Big time. And um, that being young, they're suffering. Being old, they're suffering. And I always think of uh, I like the Buddhist concept of the two arrows. That you know, we the first arrow is the suffering of like circumstance that there are so many things, most, the vast majority of things we cannot control and have absolutely no control over. Um, but, and so that's the first arrow that gets put into us. But the second arrow is, uh, you know, the attachment to the suffering and saying, well, I'll never trust anybody like that, or I'll never do that right. kind of thing again or whatever right. that we in fact like stab into ourselves. And yeah, um, yeah like, you know, like it's a, it's like a trope of a Zen teacher who, a Zen teacher is not somebody who's like peace and love and it's like, oh, it's all going to be okay. Everything's going to work out fine. Um, at times they're like that, but they, I think they're more often um, challenging you. Um, and, you know, the, the, the idea of a Zen koan is sort of this unanswerable question. Right. And so you're supposed to think about it and think about it and think about it, I believe, until you realize that there's not particularly an answer and you kind of need to move past the duality right. of the, no, it's not this, it is this, it's, it is this, it's not this. It calls you to a place past reason. And I think that that's what religion is supposed to be doing for you is the rest of the world is about getting the right answers um, and believing that that will make you succeed. And religion is supposed to be a sort of respite from that. And you can frame it as, you know, Christ dying on the cross to defeat death, to, to reorient our focus to the here and now, you know, the kingdom of God is within you, that sort of thing. Um, it, it all seems to be geared at getting us past this idea that things are going to make sense and there is a big answer coming and, you know, the trumpets are about to blow. Um, the world doesn't act according to our understanding. And that's the sort of suffering that we're talking about that comes from trying to control and improve the world. Well, you look at the rest of creation and sorry to use that term, the rest of the universe and um, it's totally in sync and it, it's uh, not, it's yielding, you know, it's yielding to, to the forces of, of nature. I think that's what we're trying to get out of it is a reminder to ourselves that there is something beyond, um, you know, Philippians says a peace beyond understanding peace that surpasses understanding mm. yeah there's a value to that you know to not needing to know the answers yeah and uh it makes me think of two um there's a there's a, a george gurdjieff talk well, i read a book of his where he's talking about you know like if you dislike something about yourself you can't really change it and that but the 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 most important thing you could do at, at this current moment would be to study yourself, to study your own mind, observe your habit, habits, and then maybe you could possibly, but obviously like kind of from an intuitive aspect, that's very frustrating 
and uh, you are a politically active person. So, like, how do you square that? Like, I don't feel this way, but someone may say, if not, if you can't change anything, if you can't fix the world's problems, then why try? Which I have some uh, answers to that, but yeah. but uh, you know, I, I I wonder how you feel. I think the answer is because it's the right thing to do, um, and that's up to you, right? You know, it, I think it's the right thing to do. There's um, another. There's a Bhagavad Gita verse that I, I love, and it's uh, you have the right to work, but for work's sake only. You have no right to the fruits of your work. Yeah. And then there's also a similar verse in the Gospels, Luke 17, 10, where Christ says, uh, when you've done everything that was commanded of you, still you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. So I think that um, there's obviously a place for social justice, even in religious traditions that emphasize that God is moving and organizing things in ways that we don't really understand or that the universe is moving and organizing things in ways we don't understand. Obviously, there's a strong social justice component to Judaism, which is focused on, at times, repairing the world. Um, I don't think that it means you give up on the world, but you need to understand your place in it. Um, and I think saying you have no right to the fruits of your work it's just kind of saying, by all means, try to change things. But if they do change, understand you didn't do that. You know, it, it was a, a combination of factors that produced that. Um, you can't take over the world and control it. You can't do it. Um, yeah, I think it calls us to an understanding of, of it calls us to a better perspective of our own actions within movements. Um, and it's a humbling sort of philosophy. Uh, there's... I think an RFK quote that is, it's something like, you know, no one person, and I'm majorly paraphrasing, can change the world, but um, a generation, the acts of a generation can add up, whatever. Uh, you get the point. I think there's a, a wisdom and understanding that, no, you, you can't make a big difference and you need to deal with it. And if you still want to be active in society, it needs to be with that understanding and that should influence your work. Yeah, I, I, um, I've heard it said too that like, well, of course, as important as Dr. King was to the civil rights movement, it was also uh, thousands and thousands of unnamed people who gave their lives who we don't know, we don't know who their names are. And yet they're every bit as important to that overall movement. And I think, yeah, some of what you're saying too is like, there will be positive and negative forces and movements that happen. And so to that extent, it's you kind of have to ask yourself, well, which, which do you choose to be a part of? Yeah. Um, off of that a little bit, like how much uh, free will do you believe an individual has versus a determinism? Is it, is it a mix of both? Um, I'm totally fine with saying like absolute free will. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't think that we concoct all of our all of the situations that we encounter. Um, I'm just not really interested in robbing people of their agency. I think that it leads to, to less healthy um, ideas. You know, I don't know. I, I feel that I have 
plenty of free will to act within the circumstances, you know, that I find myself in. Um, I, I think that, except to the degree that like, you know, there are economic constraints or whatever that prevent people from doing what they want to do. I don't think, no, I guess I don't think that, um, I would say that predeterminism is, is kind of supposed to call us outside of time, you know, to, to remind us that this is just a very, very temporary fleeting moment. Um, and that there are bigger things that perceive time differently. I don't know. I, the same idea that, that says everything is predetermined would also suggest that like God is at the end of time as well. So it's, it's not so much a, a things being predicted. It's just everything is going to play out. I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I guess the way that I, I frame it to myself is like, uh, because we, it's a balance, of course, between the fact that <laughs> we are a teeny tiny grain of sand in an enormous ever-expanding universe, um, and yet uh, you have to know your zip code and you have to put gas in your car and right. there, like your, your existence is quite, a, you know, you have, we, have, we have stuff to yeah. do. Um, so I guess I kind of see it as like a balance kind of between those two things. Um, what, this is, a, uh, I guess, a silly question, but and in some ways you've already answered this, but like, what is your current conception of what God is? Because I've sure. talked a lot of, with Mike about like people even get upset at the word God, you know, and yeah. they, they assume it's this guy who's upset with them all the time. Yeah. I have, uh, come, I have come to become much more comfortable with uh, the term God. Um, and I think a lot of times, like culturally, what people, when people say the universe, this allness, this oneness, I think that's kind of what God is. What do you think? Um, so I like went through a bunch of my books and, and wrote down some of my favorite quotes today. And like 20 of them are from, I will highly recommend, this is My Bright Abyss by Christian Wyman. Um, and if you grew up with the language of Christianity, I think it will be really interesting to you. If you hmm. didn't, it may be of less value. Um, but he offers a few different definitions of religion. And he also offers what I think is one of the more scientific descriptions I've seen and I love. Um, he says, if quantum entanglement is true, if related particles react in similar or opposite ways, even when separated by tremendous distances, then it is obvious that the whole world is alive and communicating in ways we do not fully understand. And we are part of that life part of that communication, even as, maybe even especially as, our atoms begin the long dispersal we call death. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that the, the current maybe in vogue tendency to call God the universe does capture it fine, but there's also a really important component of understanding that you don't stand separate from it. Um, that's an important part of my conception of God is that Insofar as I am separate from God, it's a uh, failing of consciousness on my part, maybe. Um, it's a failure to understand that I am totally a part of God. I think that I don't really believe in a, uh, a being. I don't really believe in a being separate from the universe. Um, 
you know, if you told me there's a being outside of our universe and our universe is, you know, in a ball or whatever on his cat's neck, like in Men in Black, well, there's still something beyond that, you know, it's, right. it doesn't stop anywhere. Like, that's what I think about God is it's hmm. what keeps going. It's, it's the beginning of time. It's the end of time. It's what was uh, there before the universe began and what was there before that and what was there before that. And I don't think that it's a, a creature. Um, I think it is what we are a part of, what we're of, you know, it's, uh, um, Paul quotes, I think he's quoting um, just writers of the time when he says, yeah, I think this is your very own prophets of such and like that, you know, in him, we move and live and have our being. That's what I think about God. Like God is the thing that we are in. God is the big picture. Um, and I, I'm not really interested in the tendency to, for God to be separate. Um, yeah, I think that is a very important point that it's not that it, like if we are all this oneness, that includes yourself also. Right. And I wonder if not having that concept um, contributes to people feeling uh, lonely or upset or out of like out of place um, or like self-conscious, always feeling they're doing the wrong thing, feeling very uh, filled with regret. Um, do you think that uh, having that understanding remedies some of those things? No, I don't. Um, and this is, I'm going to go to Christian Wyman again. Um, he says, if God is a salve applied to unbearable psychic wounds or a dream figure conjured out of memory and mortal terror, or an escape from a life that has become either too appalling or too banal to bear, then I have to admit it is not working for me. Um, and I think that it is a common thing among religious thinkers that, that they are very isolated, very um, lonely people themselves. So I think that's an important component as well is understanding that Comfort is not necessarily part of the package. Like there is, you know, Christ says, come lay your, lay your burdens down, hand them over to me. Um, there is a sort of comfort in embracing the big picture and embracing that, that death is the same thing as life, you know, um, that it's all one cycle or whatever. Um, But I don't think that, no, I guess I probably think that if people are lonely, it's because their communities um, are not supporting them or they don't have friends in their lives. I don't know. I mean, I think the times that I have been lonely, which are still often, regardless of how much scripture I read, it feels like a pretty separate thing to me. I don't think that being religious has made it any easier. Um, I just, but I prefer my perspective. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Because I guess, would you say that, and maybe, would you say that being religious? Because uh, I, I guess, I guess even I kind of think this that like, uh, well, if everybody's like going to church together, that is a community, and it's a kind of community that exists much less so. But yeah. even like being in the context of that community doesn't necessarily make you more connected. Right. Would you, would you agree with that? Definitely. Um, I will say that 
with regards to your question about whether or not America needs to reclaim some sort of spiritual component, I could take the church or leave it. Um, you know, I, but I do think that it does something for some people. And especially there is a social component that may be a little bit um, outdated now because of, I don't know, maybe because of social media, but my parents and my wife's parents have both talked about how when they were in their 20s or early 30s moving a lot with young kids to a new area how are you going to find someone to look after your kids in an emergency a babysitter how are you going to find um who's going to bring gifts to your baby shower you know whatever um there's a social value to it that i'm totally fine with and i, I think that that may be actually the healthiest part of the church is that for some people, it gets them out of their house um, a few times a week and they interact with other people. But there are huge cons there in having thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in our society go hear dangerous ideas once or twice a week. Is that worth the social structure that I want everyone to have? I want everyone to have that sort of familial network if it has to come with all of that, then I'd probably rather not have it. And, and I would say we need to, to find ways to structure our communities um, where people can get that interaction in other ways. And religion needs to be um, ultimately an individual pursuit, as I think it always has to be. But uh, regardless, it's not something for mass consumption. Yeah, that's a great point, man, is that trade-off is not one you can really uh, like square. Um, right. That uh, while we do need that community aspect. And that's one of the things that I think makes spirituality or uh, religious pursuits kind of tricky is, um, you know, there, there's really not a rule book that's uh, good enough in as far as there's nothing you're ever going to read that's like on Tuesday. When this thing sure. happens, you should really do this, you know, right. and that what what I think spiritual pursuit or any progress, if there is progress to be made insofar as like making yourself more, you know, live a little bit lighter. Um, it's incredibly individualized and it's really about like self-study and listening to yourself and the things that you are bothered by or what have or you yeah. feel compelled to do. And so. I think that's a very good point. And then do you think then that can we help one another from a spiritual standpoint or are we all kind of on our own journey and maybe we meet up and we cross paths and we have little moments, but they don't ultimately um, make us grow. Yeah. Um, I think, sure. I think we can help each other along in really literal ways. I, I mean, I'm recommending this book. That's something. Um, uh, that's a big, a big part of it is, is honestly just religious study. I think that's it. Um, now there are other elements where, you know, um, there's a great YouTube, uh, video, um, between James Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni, where they're talking a lot about, um, men and women's places in society. And it's, it's fascinating. And it obviously is tangential to, a lot of religious conversations about how we structure our societies, what it means to be 
good husband, what it means to be a good person. Um, it doesn't all have to be burying your nose in uh, Bonhoeffer or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think we can help each other along uh, by sharing the things that maybe direct our our eyes in the right direction. Uh, when you find something that inspires you, but also we all know that w when we send our friends videos to watch, you know, we don't always watch them, right? We appreciate, thank you for sending me this and thinking of me, I really appreciate it. And maybe uh, when I am waiting at the doctor's office or something, I'm gonna remember this and watch it. <laughs> so can, you know, can we help each other along? Yeah, we can try, but like ultimately you gotta want it. Um, you know, Christ has uh, another, there's another verse where Christ asked a man who, who I think is asking to be healed, do you want to be well? Um, that's part of it. I mean, are you interested in in wrestling with these questions? If you're not, then no, there's nothing I can do to change that. If you've got too much on your plate to spend the weekend reading or watching some video, I, people are exhausted. Um, so I don't know. I think that it, it does have to be a really singular thing because it's kind of the, the biggest thing you could ask somebody else to also do. Um, there's a... I don't think it's Wyman. I think he's quoting someone else in this book uh, where he says, Christ is like a shard of glass in the gut. And then also Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So there's a lot of that sort of thing where you are going kind of to the ends of the earth, um, spiritually speaking, emotionally speaking. You're trying to figure out, you talked about Zen. One of the Zen koans is, what was your face before you were born? Um, you're trying to go out past the edge of something. Um, Wyman also compares it to dying in the desert. I don't know that we can really bring each other along for that, um, but we can try, I guess. You know, if people are interested, yeah, sure. Yeah. We can help them along. Well, it, remi it reminds me of what I was asking you before we got going about uh, you're in law school now. Like, um, you know, education is not filling a bucket, but igniting a fire. And like, if you don't uh, care about what it is you are learning, you're not going to learn it, you know? Yeah. And that yeah. is true, like you're saying, all across the board and all sorts of things. And um, gosh, uh, yeah. Uh, all great points, man. What, what, I wonder what you think about, I had questions about it, now. I just have a bunch of questions I want to ask. Okay. <laughs> you can ask them all. I love talking about this stuff. What do you think about like then human nature? Do you think we are ultimately quite, uh, do we lean more towards being greedy, selfish, and bothersome? Um, or do we lean more towards being, compassionate and taking care of one another and there are systems in the way or something or do you think we're kind of down the middle with that stuff and we we have yeah. the, the lightness and the darkness and we live somewhere in the between no i would probably take like a, a pretty scientific approach on that one like i think our motivations are probably based um there's some tension between the survival instinct and uh which is probably older than the learned instinct that if we protect our communities, we are safer. I think those are two kind of competing ideas that have been 
cooked into human nature for a really, really long time. Um, mm. And I think that's probably most of it. Um, I don't know that I believe that we're born flawed or born good and we've fallen from grace. I mean, that rhetoric has its place, but no, I think the reason that we have war and greed and all, I think it's all pretty just, that's just the way it goes. That's just people. Um, I like what you said about, uh, you know, this sort of like ancient instinct of survival versus the learned instinct <clears throat> of kind of being in communal groups and stuff like that, because that to me makes it makes the picture of now make a little bit more sense that 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 learned communal aspect is something we just haven't been doing as long or, or yeah. haven't been in a position to uh, see the benefits of or something. Yeah. Um, so it seems at least at this moment to be a little bit weaker than this um, like uh, survival instinct. Yeah, I think it's a bigger gamble. Um to protect what you have immediately is going to be more gratifying than, than investing in a social structure that is supposed to pay out when you're in need. Um, I, after college, I was in LA for six months and I went out there to act and I didn't have a clue what I was doing and I ran out of money almost immediately. Um, and the only job I found was freelance writing for a couple different newspapers and they would pay like, 50 bucks, 45 days after publication or something like, you know, just totally untenable as a way to pay bills. <laughs> but one of the last articles I did was interviewing, I think he was a former Air Force doctor or something. And in his retirement, he had been studying something called blue zones. And these are areas in the world where people live longer, healthier lives. And they compared, his group compared different blue zones around the world to see which behaviors or customs they had in common. And there were things like um, exercise or physical activity is not a hobby. It's just inherent in the way that they live their lives. And that could be chosen or not chosen. You know, probably you'd prefer to have a faucet than to walk to get your water. But one of those is going to leave you more in shape than the other. Um, but the one that was very interesting is he said communities that um, take care of their elders, communities that up, you know, that hold up their elders, people tend to live longer, healthier lives. And that comes to mind here because I think when people are asked to choose protect me now or protect other people in my community and hope that when I'm in their position, I'll be treated the same way. I understand why that comes second. You know, I understand why it loses out to the survival instinct. And there's a faith component there um, that has to be involved in community. And maybe this is a part of the whole, you know, you can't improve the world, you can't change the world sort of thing. Not only can you not really convince people not to protect themselves or their families, you're never going to. Like, you're never ever gonna be able to persuade someone that they're wrong for trying to survive. It's an extremely strong impulse. And that's what we're coming up against when we're advocate, uh, advocating for community over that sort of individualism. It's a big ask, especially when like the things that we would love to promise, like healthcare, we haven't won them yet. You know, it would be one thing 
we have social security, you know, we have some things where we can go, look, this way of doing things can also redound to your benefit. Um, but I don't think that our examples are quite as strong enough as that personal instinct to, to put yourself and your family first and then to build the wall around them, you know, um, it's yeah. a fight we're going to be fighting forever. I don't know that, you know, yeah, that's a good point that, you know, we're not going to get to a moment where we're like, we fixed it, <laughs> you know. Right, <laughs> and right. And that does have to mean something in, in the way that we're pushing for social justice when we say you can't improve the world. But we do know that there are obviously things that we could do to improve people's material circumstances. We know that to be true. I mean, the COVID relief check, great, perfect example. We know that helped. Um how do you square that? I know that doing some things will help with the notion that tomorrow all of those same problems will be here. Everyone that got those checks, guess what? They need them again this week. Uh, yeah, right. And they will need them again next week. Uh, and that can't mean that we don't do it. Does it, does it change the way that we pitch certain solutions? Does it change which solutions we pitch? Um, how do we come up against that instinct to not pay in to the system? Um, I don't have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's certainly, I don't know. It's a, it's a really difficult know. question. Um, now you mentioned uh, the F word, which is uh, another word that people get very upset by or confused by, which is faith. Faith. What is your what is your conception of faith, man? Um. I, that's a good question. I think that faith and doubt have fallen out of it a little bit for me, the rhetoric that I'm using in the last few years, because I, my doubts are more about what, what I was just talking about, how we can reconcile being in the world and, and not being of the world. Um, I, I'm not experiencing a lot of doubt about God, so I don't know that I think about things in terms of faith very much. I feel very like when I say God, the thing I'm talking about is objective. Like I don't need to prove it or disprove it because it's, I'm looking, this is what I'm talking about. Like all the stuff we're looking about is, you know, I don't need to prove it to you. You can see it right here. Um, so I, I have to think that, that faith, you know, when, uh, when scripture is saying faith is, is the belief in things not seen. Um, I don't think that that's about God. I think that it is a sort of belief that things will work out. Um, you're taking someone's word that engineering your whole ethical system against personal survival can still have benefits to you and you can survive in a different way, um, you know, dying to the world and all that. I think that's what faith has to be. It's, it's what makes you walk into the desert. It's the belief that regardless of whether or not Christ literally uh, died and was born again, or literally walked on water or, you know, um, the same sorts of, of, of events that are in, in every single religion, regardless of the things that rub up against our tendency to explain things, I believe that 
if we walk this narrow path, we will we will look back without regrets. You know, I think that that's what faith is, is there really are not a lot of immediate benefits to a pursuit of righteousness. In many cases, you're losing out. You could very easily take something for yourself and instead you're electing not to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, the survival instinct would say that's that's stupid. That doesn't make any sense to allow others to claim what you could have. Mm-hmm. Faith says, believe it, you know. Mm-hmm. You'll look back and you'll go, yeah, that was the right thing to do. Right. And if, uh, and of course, that's made all the more difficult by, you know, the over-commercialized system of like, buy this now. And everything's like clicks and the internet is so much about instant gratification and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So in some ways, I don't know, it's always been tough to have faith. But when there's so much instant gratification in not having faith and being yeah. selfish and uh, promoting your own brand. Um, yeah. That makes it, I think, all the more difficult and, and, and somewhat kind of alienating. Well, I will say I want to sort of amend uh, saying that it's it's a long wait for any sort of return. This is almost kind of like working out where you do. Uh, it's been my experience that if I'm consistent, if and I haven't been very well through COVID, but if I'm consistent and I'm exercising, I do reach a point where I start to notice the um the gains for lack of a better word. Yeah. Uh, I sort of <laughs> notice the benefits and that sort of fuels you. Like you, you don't have to have as much blind faith. Um, maybe for some people it is about the afterlife. I don't really care about the afterlife, but I think that when you start to plug into this way of looking at the world, and you start to try to seek out other people who, who have asked the same sorts of questions, you will start to see returns um, from that pretty quickly. They may not be super comfortable. They may call you to live your life in a different way. And you may have to go, I'm not ready for this. And okay, fine. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that, that, that faith can come back around fairly quickly. It's not always a, if it's all about what's going to happen when you die in 50 years, you're going to have to wait a little bit to see that. Right. Like, but if it's about, Hey, how am I going to feel at the end of the day? If I focus on work without being concerned about whether or not it changes the world, if I just focus on doing what I think I'm supposed to do today, I mean, you're going to have an answer to that within a week. Uh, Do I like, am I more positive? Do I feel more at peace with the world? Am I more motivated in a healthy way? I don't know. I guess it has not been my experience. Luckily that faith is a, a big, big ask. Yeah, that's true. I mean, because, <clears throat> yeah, I think sometimes people think, too, that, uh, well, to have faith, yeah, you're only doing things for the afterlife. So your entire life is supposed to be, uh, you know, you have no pleasure or benefit at all. Right. And it is true. Like, faith will have, if you, there's, um, <clears throat> Jack Cornfield is like a Buddhist teacher guy that uh, you know, he says, if you have a compassionate impulse, right then and there, just follow it. Absolutely. And like, you know, if yeah, that's it. it might not lead you to everywhere you want to be, sometimes you'll have to take somebody to the airport and that's yeah. you know a big pain in the ass. And yet that compassionate act will, in the not too distant future, like you're saying, allow yourself to live in a more compassionate place or like uh, feel a little bit better in some ways. Yeah. And, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we ha- I had a friend of mine, um, Harrison Crown on who was uh, 
he's like a psychiatrist and uh he was saying you know change and progress happens in little tiny bits most often so when you look at yourself in the mirror every day you look the same but if you look at a picture from yourself 10 years ago you're like wow i look totally different but on that same token if you were to take a picture of yourself every single day yeah over the course of three months you would see change and ultimately those kinds of things are like a muscle where uh it is it's it's gained (laughs) uh like uh you do see returns fairly quickly and they grow on one another. Right. Um, whereas a lot of times I think maybe the survival instinct or that, that snap uh, uh, kind of thinking, it gives you that burst and then it fades very quickly. And then yeah. you kind of just are like constantly lifting and putting it down and without any real kind of like uh, building upon it. Yeah. That's a good um, segue to my other religious moment that I wrote down. Good. I was, was just going to ask you that. Uh, I don't know if, so did you grow up going to church at all? I went, uh, not really. My parents were like raised Catholic, but I, I only went to church on like holidays and stuff like that. Okay. Um, so no, I don't have a particular uh, like historic tie to uh, those okay. kind of teachings. Well, so you probably would not be familiar with these programs, but there are, uh, there's a youth group trip that a lot of churches have done and they're called dry bones programs. This comes from a verse in the book of Ezekiel where uh, I, I think if I'm remembering right, um, God brings to life dry bones. Um, there's a valley of dry bones. Well, the way these programs work is your youth group goes to Colorado and you spend a few days hiking a mountain for this big spiritual experience. And then you spend a few days um ministering to probably bugging homeless people in Denver, you know? Um, Well, my church did a version of this where they totally cut out the second part. This was not expressed overtly, but presumably because they didn't want us interacting with poor black people. Um, And we just did what was called wilderness trek. So it was just the four days of going to Colorado and climbing a mountain. Um, okay, which is, you, you know, right, that's uh, kind of spiritual, I guess. <laughs> right, sure, right. You know, and they march you around to these guides. Probably it's, it's a two-hour hike, and they make it take three days to really teach you a lesson. And <laughs> you're totally separated from everything, and you've got no phone, and, you know, you're it's – it's um, you don't know about the, the youth rally experience if you do not grow up in this, but it's very common to make sure that teenagers get very little sleep, um, stay up very late singing, whatever they got breakfast early in the morning. You're trying to emotionally exhaust and then manipulate these people into, um, having a, a conversion experience or a spiritual experience. that's generally just fueled by sleep deprivation. Um, but, you have a few days of doing this and then you get to the summit of the mountain on the last day. And it's supposed to be this big radical look at God's might sort of deal. And I felt nothing at all. Um, and I was probably 15 at the time. And I think that was, again, I didn't have this sort of like, so God is nothing experience. It was like, Oh, so God is something different. Um, and that was probably my first brush with this idea that it is not really about you're trying to yield to the ups and downs, but you're, you're trying to do it consistently. Like you're trying to move through life balanced. And, and it's not about having this 
big moment. It's not about Christ coming on clouds. Like it's about doing your duty. Um, and I think that uh, that's a healthier religion and one that's a lot more accessible to people and one that shows emotional returns a lot more quickly. Like your goal here is not to come face to face with the God of the universe. Like your goal is to do no harm. You know, like your goal is to <laughs> right. take a shopping cart. Literally, this is it. This is religion. You see a shopping cart that someone has left out in the parking lot and you take it back. And that's it. And you take five more seconds to do that every time you see it because it's the right thing to do. And that's not one that is going to six months from now make you stronger. You know, you're not going to be more dexterous because you did this. It's not going to do anything for you at all. But certainly we know it's the right thing to do. All of us know that that's the right thing to do. Mm. It's a lot of exactly what you're saying. It is when you find yourself. I read something today that was like religion is what you do in your moments of overmastery. In those moments when you do think, I haven't been taken by surprise. Somebody hasn't lunged out at me and asked for a few dollars. You know, I have a moment here and I'm presented with an opportunity to do the right thing. What do you do then when it's just so easy? And I know that if you do it when it's easy, it becomes easier to do the right thing when it is harder. Hmm. Because it's not this whole like, let me get myself up off the bench and get warmed up you've built in this reaction time. That's a lot of it. It's just in the same way that you might find yourself speaking too much or interrupting people, you first become aware of the behavior, you try to identify it, and then you try to catch yourself quicker in the act every time until eventually you've reached a place where before I even take this action, I question whether or not I should take it. And when you're in moments where you find yourself of right mind, and you can choose to do the right thing. You need to do it every single time. That's the whole thing. You know, be perfect as my father in heaven is perfect. Nobody's looking to smite you for your accidents. This is why there's a huge component of forgiveness um, in religion. But you need to learn to do the right thing whenever you can, no matter how big or small it is. And the rest of the stuff, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it if you messed up. Be patient with yourself, but do the right thing. Hmm. Man, uh, that feels like a good place to leave it, Barrett. But let me just say, that's such a lovely summation of our discussion here, how funny it is that in the, in the moment where you were supposed to have a manufactured, very spiritual, very religious moment where like we brought you to the mountain, you know, it's going to be the big thing. And it seems like you're saying that the kind of hollowness of that prescribed experience was the very thing that made you realize the actual, right. <laughs> like right. a more, uh, a more yeah. wholesome, uh, like I said, like holistic approach That's to right. what a, religion really is or what spirituality really is. Definitely. There's a, a Prince anecdote where someone asked him, you know, don't you want to make another purple rain? And he said, no, because I've been to the mountaintop and there's nothing there. Um, that's what it's all about. What do you say when you come back down? Um, well, Barrett, I want to thank you very much uh, for taking time to chat with me today. I had a feeling that you would be very well versed in this stuff. I, of course, know that you're a very smart individual. Oh, the thing that I wanted to mention at the top of the show was uh, I, I did a show of yours that was at like, what's it called? Like the silver light up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And you started the show by like reading a passage, um, which I thought was so rad to do. Uh, I wonder if that was a thing that you did with any frequency or do you remember that passage? Cause I remember it being, yeah. uh, I just thought it was such a cool way to start a show. Yeah. I can tell you it was almost definitely from, and I'm about to show you a cartoon dick. So get ready. It was probably <laughs> almost definitely from selected poems of Frank O'Hara. Yes, uh, I believe it was. <laughs> first poem in this autographia, autobiographia literaria. Um, I was using that in sets for a while and then, Maybe for Gottfried Ben, another one in here. He has the phrase combating the void of rounds that has been stuck in my head since I read it. And I think that it always comes up when I'm thinking about religion. I don't know what it means, but it means something. Um, so it would have been that. And then, yeah, I started doing that more and more. My last performance in New York was probably where I, I really feel like I nailed the formula that I was trying to get to ironically the the whole time um and it was a, probably a back and forth between poems of mine and um maybe at that point i was still integrating some of other authors but probably at that point it was all mine spliced with uh comedic monologues or stand-up bits and it was just thrown in as another component of the show and um i think it, you know it added a different dimension that i found really fun yeah, man. I, th I just thought that was so cool. And I, that's the kind of thing I'm trying to like foray into at this moment is like uh, stand up in and of itself. It's obviously a different discussion, but stand up can be kind of restrictive. And, you know, you, you have to do set a punchline, set a punchline. And that I think uh, with podcasts and all this kind of thing, like we're expanding a little bit the ideas of like what uh, I think we demand more of our performers now. Like yeah. we want to know more about you personally. Um yeah. And that that's kind of a good thing. And it is opening the doors to different kinds of art forms and you can bring different things to the table. Yeah, and uh, when I saw you do that, I, I was uh, I was in awe, man. <laughs> I was like, that, that's like that's, that's the thing. I had, yeah, um, I had a lot of fun when I started adding in. It's a great way to fill time if you don't have enough stuff. That's a good point, too. Yeah. <laughs> Just read 50 pages real quick that's and fill right. an hour. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to cut it off here. We can chat a little bit Don't afterwards, care. Barrett. But thank you very much for being on the show, man. I'm going to have thank to go back and listen to this myself. Um, and Christian Wyman, got to get the book. Got to get the read book. That, man. Check out the book. It's great. Um, and he recommends my, a ton of other authors within that book. So it's a great start to push you off. My Bright Abyss, it's called. My Bright um, Abyss, yeah. I'm going to have to look into that. All right. Mike and I will be back Sunday morning. One last thank you to Barrett. Um, thank you for tuning in tonight. Uh, you can check everything out on Linktree slash content content, all that kind of stuff. And we'll talk.